Hey everyone, and welcome back to Via the Podcast, where together we're exploring what it means to follow Jesus. I'm your host, Matt Winley, and I want to take a second to encourage you, keep going. Keep taking steps of faith because it's worth it. I think sometimes we can get a little discouraged because the world is trying to get us to stop, trying to trying to get us to stop taking steps of faith, trying to discourage us, trying to distract us, and even sometimes other Christians can do that. I was just talking with a friend this past week who felt like other Christians were kind of like, whoa, like, don't be so religious. You know, it's it's okay to have a little bit of Jesus, but don't let Jesus take over your life, that kind of thing. And I want to encourage you guys, just like I encouraged him, keep taking steps of faith. So in a previous episode, we took some time to reflect on Hebrews 12. You can go back, get the full scoop, but essentially we just asked, what does an average believer, what do they picture when they read Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2? The typical picture of the race of faith. What does that look like? And how does that match up with the text? And as we dug into the text, we looked at verses 1 through 6, we went back to chapter 11, we saw a pretty dramatic difference. So the, the average believer's picture is a pretty individualistic-based race of faith that assumes an easy life, and you've got a bunch of people cheering you on, and you're just kind of looking at Jesus and avoiding some sin. The other picture, which I think is more faithful to the text, is a picture of community of people running together facing adversity together, which they already see coming because God has told them. They're enduring. They are clinging to faith. They're pointing each other to Jesus together. And that makes a huge difference in how we end up handling adversity, and and particularly how we end up preparing for that adversity. Because in our original understanding of the text, the one that I think most people have in their minds, is that there's not much preparation needed because faith is easy. I just try to conquer a few personal sins, but otherwise, I'm just waiting around till heaven, right? Like, life is good. So a thin veil of religiosity is kind of enough to get by. If I just go to church, if I'm just a nice person, I'll make it. But if the second picture is more accurate, that lack of preparation is actually really dangerous. It's disastrous. We're too isolated. We're too individualistic. We're not prepared for adversity. We're not asking hard questions. We're not challenging each other. And when we encounter adversity, it causes us to give up too quickly. It causes us to be discouraged because the reality is we've been preparing for the wrong race. So I've been asking myself, how do we actually prepare for the race as individuals and as a body of Christ? How do we prepare for for the race that God has told us that we're going to be running? And God gives us some guidance in scripture. He actually tells us some of what the race involves. He tells us some of what, how to prepare. But what I see happening in the church today is that we get stuck on doing our own thing instead of what God actually commands us to do. You think about this in the Old Testament. Look at a book like Malachi, where God actually tells them, I'd rather you shut the temple doors and continue what you're doing. I want to be worshipped in a particular way. I want to be represented in a particular way. And you're doing your own thing. So it's easy to look back on the Old Testament and to and to kind of judge them and to kind of look at them and go, well, yeah, of course, they weren't doing it right. But but what about us? You know, where are our blind spots? And we get, I think we get stuck on doing our thing, own thing as well instead of what God commands. And so today, what we're going to be doing is looking at the commands of God versus traditions of men. And I think this is something helpful for particularly our, our moment in life right now where a lot of people, the buzzword is deconstructing. You're deconstructing your previously held core beliefs, and then hopefully you're reconstructing them. And, and the point, I think a healthy deconstruction can happen if you're taking what is a foundational part of your life and you're measuring it according to scripture and then you're and then you're letting scripture change how you live and how you believe and how you think 
Um, an unhealthier deconstruction would be uh, taking how you're living and how you're believing and letting the culture deconstruct that and then reconstruct it how it wants to. So if we're wanting to follow after Jesus, which I think most of you are here, that's that's your goal, We want deconstruction isn't a bad thing if we're taking those things that we've held so closely and we're matching them up to scripture and we're just saying, God, we hold these things loosely, change them how you want me to. So we're going to be looking at commands of God versus traditions of men. How have we begun in our own lives and in our church lives to possibly elevate the traditions of men over the commands of God? And so I want to give a couple disclaimers before we before we get going. First, it, it would be really helpful to have a pen and paper handy. You don't have to. It's I think you can still benefit from this episode if you if you don't have one with you, but we'll be making a chart. And since you can't see what I'm doing, that's one of the problems with this mode of communication. It's, it's okay, though. Uh, you can make your own. Um, but I promise you it'll be worth it uh, once you've made the chart to go back and see what's on both sides of the chart and be able to compare them and begin to think about them and reflect on them in the days to come. Okay, so I promise you it'll be worth going through those motions. Second disclaimer, much of this content will be directly from a training that I watched from a group called We Are Church. I watched it five or six years ago, and it was really impactful for me. I was encouraged by it. I was challenged by it. I've watched it numerous times since then. I've shared it with many people, but I can't find the full version of it anywhere online. I've tried because I wanted to share it with other people. So what I'm doing is I'm presenting it a bit differently, like my take on it, but I'm using some notes that I took from them. And I just want to thank them for providing the foundation for this. Much of what I do here is probably going to look very similar to what they did there. And if anyone finds this helpful, I just want to say it's due to God's work through that ministry that much of this legwork is done by them, and I'm just putting my own personal spin on it. So uh, I'm just sharing, I'm just wanting to share what has encouraged me. So thank you, We Are Church, and that training. And if you have a full link to it and you happen to hear this, We Are Church, send it to me and I will happily share with other people. Uh, but they began by looking at a passage, and we're going to begin by looking at the same passage where Jesus is eating with his disciples. Um, and then once we look at that passage, we'll begin to make a, a chart, like I said. So have a pen and paper handy, but for now you can turn in your Bibles to Mark 7, and we're going to do a very quick Bible study before we begin to look at some of the traditions versus commandments. So Mark 7, uh, it, you can just listen to me, or if you, you'll probably benefit by looking at the text yourself as well. So this is Mark 7, verses 1 through 9. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Okay. So what's going on here? The, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're apparently following Jesus around enough to see him eating with his disciples. But they notice something that bothers them. And so they come up to Jesus and they ask what could appear like a very simple question, right? Why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? That's literally what they're asking about. Why aren't you washing your hands? And, and for us, that's pretty normal. We wash our hands all the time and probably 
even more so now in our moment of history than ever before because we've been going through a pandemic and people are used to washing your hands all the time. So it really wouldn't be out of place for me to ask my kids, well, why don't you, why have you washed your hands before dinner? Have you, have you, have you done that? And when they answer, I'm not going to get mad at, I'm not going to get mad at them, but I'll tell them, no, you need to go back and wash your hands. But in this story, the Pharisees asked Jesus, you know, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? And you notice that Jesus' response is a little surprising. He responds pretty harshly, right? He, he rebukes them for their hypocrisy, and he kind of goes off on them a little bit. And, and it might make you go, well, what is going on here? Like, whoa, Jesus, like, why, why is that making you so upset? Um, because it could seem like a little bit of an odd reaction to us. So let's go verse by verse and, and kind of begin to get a feel for why, what, why would Jesus be this upset and, and what's really important to him here. So verse 3 offers a hint. It's giving us some inside information from that time. It tells us that there's this thing called the tradition of the elders, and it was a very strongly held tradition that had become a cultural and religious expectation. Notice that it says, for the Pharisees and quote-unquote, all the Jews. You know, was it all the Jews? Well, you know, the disciples, they weren't apparently washing their hands, so it wasn't necessarily all, but it's like us saying, you know, the whole world knows about this. It just simply means that more people than not were doing it. It's a, it's a common practice. But in this instance, it's, it's more than just good hygiene. The Pharisees aren't just concerned that the disciples are going to catch COVID or catch some kind of disease. Their questions seem to indicate a belief in their time that if the disciples aren't washing their hands, or if you're not washing your hands, then somehow you're dishonoring God. In fact, in the third century, so this is a little time passed after Jesus and after this story, but I just want to give you an idea of how serious they were. I found in the Babylonian Talmud, it says, whoever eats bread without previously washing the hands is as though he had intercourse with a harlot. So they're, they're equating not washing your hands before you eat with, you know, some kind of sexual sin. Those are strong words. So there's this very large expectation that you're going to do something before you eat. And if you don't, then it equates to how you're relating to God. That if 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 you don't wash your hands before you eat, then you're hurting that relationship somehow, or you are dishonoring him somehow. It, it changes your worship. It changes your holiness. It's it's part of this tradition of the elders that, that apparently included a lot of other expectations as well. As well. You can read those in verse 4 about washings of cups and pots and copper vessels and, and dining couches, etc. So how does Jesus respond to this? Because they have a very strong expectation. They're asking him about his disciples and why they're not doing it. So what does Jesus say? Notice in verse 6, he says, he, he quotes a passage from the Old Testament from Isaiah, he's, and he talks about how they are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's actually in verse 7. What does he mean by that? What, that they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's accusing them of taking things that are not said in their quote-unquote Bible, which would be like their Hebrew scriptures, the, the Tanakh. And whether these things are helpful or not, that's not the point. That's irrelevant. You're taking things that are not in the Hebrew scriptures. You're taking a tradition and you're elevating it to a command of God, to a doctrine, as if it were on par with what God says. So washing hands before you eat, it's not commanded anywhere in the Old Testament for every single Jewish person to do. There are some commands relevant to washing, but but none like this. And this very strong expectation to the point where they're really offended, like something has actually been broken and defiled 
is not commanded, but you can you can almost feel how deeply how deeply held uh, it's it's such a deeply held value that you feel the weightiness of it, right? They they've taken this tradition, even a very well-meaning one, and they've elevated it on par with the command of God. So you're you're equaling out those two things, this tradition and a command. And then Jesus keeps going, verse 8. He says you leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men. He even takes it a step further in his accusation. No longer is he saying you're equaling them out, but you're actually taking the commands of God and you're putting them below the traditions of men. There's a, there's a huge shift here. All of a sudden, what we prefer, what we consider to be righteous or religious or sacred, however you want to call it, it supersedes the directions that God has given us. So now it's not just an issue that you've, you know, elevated on par with God's commands, but you're you're now doing that and neglecting what rightly should have been a focus. You're, you're putting in second place what should be in first. And, you know, I was thinking about this, and it could happen unintentionally, right? Like, I think sometimes we get into habits unintentionally that we don't mean to put before God, but we do. But in this case, it doesn't seem so, because he, he continues this critique in verse 9. He says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So Jesus keeps pushing even further. Now he's accusing them of not only elevating the tradition to the same place as God, or even elevating it over the commandments of God, but now he's saying you're outright rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish something of your own. It seems like that they have a reason why they want their tradition, the way that they do things, to be the focus instead of focusing on all the things that God has called them to do. And he goes on after these verses, you can continue reading to expand further about what they were actually doing. He, he gives an example of how they were doing this. But here's the point, and then we're going to get to the chart. There are ways that God wants us to live and worship and act and speak. That's the commands of God. That the people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the people of that time, for whatever reason, didn't want to do. And they would rather elevate these other things to be the focus. And this is one of the best examples that I've found in Scripture where there's this very direct tension between the traditions of men and the commands of God. And there, there is a danger in overemphasizing things that God did not command. And it can be very subtle, but, but it's easy to drift off mission. What do we care about? What are we passionate about? What are the things that are non-negotiable for us, our traditions, or are they God's commands? And I'm sure the people, they, you know, they probably didn't see the problems either. They, they were blinded to it. And that's why they needed Jesus to call them out. And, and we have them as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have so many people, quote unquote, deconstructing in this day and age is we've gone so long without addressing some of the problems that we have that now they're coming up whether we, whether we want to or not. And people, instead of addressing them and building back up, are just leaving. And so I think it's helpful for us to maybe begin to talk and have conversations about what are traditions of men that we've elevated to not just equal to the commands of God, and, and that wouldn't be good either, but above the commands of God. So what I want us to do is, is make a chart together. And this is where it's helpful to have a pen and paper. You can certainly listen, but it would be really good to see. So what I want you to do is divide the paper into two sections. And at the top, the two labels that you can give it, on the left, you can say commands of God. And then on the right, you'll have the traditions of men. So we're we're looking to create a list of God's commands that are universal, no matter the context. You know, we're not looking to tackle uh, anything controversial here. These are the clear commands of God in Scripture. The, the key to remember is that these are not optional. But then on the right, we're going to put 
traditions. Traditions of men, and these are these are the ones that we have to hold loosely. These are the optional ones. They they can be good. They can be bad. We're not trying to make a moral judgment on these right now, but those. But the point is that they're optional. They're not commands of God. So it's it's what we see potentially like the early church doing in Scripture. You 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 look at something that they've done, and while it's a helpful thing, it's not necessarily commanded by God. Just because they do it doesn't mean you have to do it. Or then there's also human traditions that have developed over the many years since Jesus has come that we've established, and while they might be helpful or not helpful, depending on your context, they're optional. And then once we make this list, I promise you the payoff is huge. Look at both sides and realize that we want to we want to major on the commands of God. The, the ones on the left are the non-negotiables. Those are the ones that we want to make sure that as an individual and as a corporate body of Christ, we are majoring on those things. Those keep us steady. Those prepare us for the race. And then however we choose to handle the others, the ones on the right, that they can't supersede the commands. We want, we want to hold them loosely. So again, thank you to We Are Church for generating the majority of this list. I am vastly following after what they have done. Um, I'm using their list as a foundation here. So thank you. And uh, and again, if you they they have a lot of great resources, so you can go and check them out. But Here's let's let's take a look at this list and I, and again at the end you'll kind of see the payoff when you begin to look at what's on both sides of the list here. So let's look at some let's look at a tradition first. All right, well we'll start with an easy one. This is the one they started off with as well. It used to be more controversial, but I think now in 2022 it's not as strong an expectation today. And the first tradition that you can put on the right side is dressing formally for church. So formal dress, you could put that. It's one of the optional ones. It's a tradition of men. And in some traditions, even still, it's very strongly expected that you come dressed up on Sunday morning. And dressed up can mean a lot of different things depending on what culture you're in, right? Like formal dress in one culture is a lot different than formal dress in another. But if someone walked in underdressed, people will have very strong feelings. Not just, I don't like that but they will feel like the person is dishonoring God or they will be offended or some people will even make conclusions about your faith. Like if they were a Christian, they wouldn't dress like that. And the point is that there's not a call, a clear call in scripture to believe that God cares about whether you're formal or informal whenever you gather as a body of Christ, whenever, they, whenever you gather with other believers. There's no direct command attached to that. Now, we do have guidance in scripture when it comes to modesty, but when it comes to formal versus informal, when we gather together, you know, what did Jesus and his disciples walk around in? <laughs> they weren't they weren't dressed the most formally, you know, we probably wouldn't even let them in. What did they visit the synagogue in? So this is kind of an easy one to start with, but it can still be very hard for some people to wrap their minds around. People can dress differently when they gather together as a church. And, you know, there's something to be said for you know, wearing your Sunday best, trying to honor God with what you have, those kinds of things. But again, we're looking for commands. It's not necessarily bad to dress up for church. It's not necessarily um, bad to dress casually for church either. Okay, so that, that's one that we're going to start with as a tradition. Now let's go to the left side and let's talk about a couple of commands. This is, let's start with the command that I think is going to be at the top of the list and it should remain at the top of the list. It's the command that Jesus gave when someone asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So obviously when you hear that, we need to ask, how do we do that? You know, how do I love God with my heart, soul, and mind? And we find that in scripture too. But this is primary. This is not optional. 
our lives should be about loving God with everything that we have. And on some of these commands, I want to put scripture because I want to highlight the fact that they are commands of God. You can go to, into the text and see that God calls us to do these things as opposed to traditions where there's no scripture directly attached, where God commands you to do it. So the scripture here would be Matthew 22, 37. You can go and read it um, for, for sake of time and making this podcast reasonably long. I'm not going to read every single scripture. So go back, Matthew 22, 37. That's where it talks about loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, and with that, I would say, that wasn't all that Jesus said. What else did he say? You can put down uh, as a command, love your neighbor as yourself. So you can put down love others. Uh, we know neighbor is not just uh, just the person next door to us living. So we can put love others. That's Matthew 22, 39. And then you could even add if you wanted to, love your enemies. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 5, meaning there's no exceptions. You're, you're loving God through loving other people. Uh, if you spent any amount of time at all looking at the commands in the New Testament, you would know that there are a ton that could fall into this heading. There are a ton of commands directly given to how we're supposed to love one another. They're actually called the quote-unquote one another's, and you could fill the whole board with these commands. So you've got things like forgive one another, love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, you, you get the idea. But those are the commands that we have to, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and to love one another. All right. So another tradition, something that tends to be very highly emphasized, uh, that can be, feel very important in our churches that we will hold very tightly sometimes, is the order of service. So you go to a church and what does their service look like? Um, their announcements, are they first or is there a song and how many songs are there going to be? All the different ways to do a service. People have very strong expectations attached to how a service is supposed to flow. And I'm, I've, I'm telling you, you, you change it up and people get really mad. And it's not, like, it's not like it's just the fact that they don't like it. Again, there's a religious expectation attached to it. Why would you put this in this particular spot? And there's... In scripture, there's no command given to, you know, in regard to a particular flow of what we do, songs, teaching, announcements, uh, reading scripture, etc. The order of our gathering is optional. Paul gives some guidance to the Corinthians in, in, in organizing their gathering, but there's no command of God to say, you know, you've got to do the announcements first, or you have to do the announcements last, or there's four songs and not three. So order of service is a tradition, but we can have very strong feelings about it sometimes. Uh, okay, let's do another command. Well, this is a command that Jesus gave, this one right after his resurrection. I think a lot of people would find this a, a very primary command, and that's to make disciples. Uh, the disciples were commissioned by Jesus to make disciples who make disciples. It's, it's a command that continues on. So it's not just given to the disciples that were with them then, but they're called to uh, go and make disciples, baptizing them, uh, teaching them to obey everything that God, Jesus has commanded them to do, which includes making disciples. So everyone is a disciple maker. Everyone is a disciple who makes disciples. And so under make disciples, you could probably put baptize, teach, obey. So we have, um, so we have this big category of make disciples, but then you have um, go, baptize, teach, obey. These are clear commands, not optional. They, they need to be present within us and within our church body. So, so far our, our commands are love God with all our heart, soul, mind. Uh, we uh, love our neighbor, the one another's, uh, and then make disciples, baptize, teach, obey, go. And our, our traditions are dressing up for church and order of service. So let's, let's go to another tradition. And this would be 
related to one of the commands that we just had, which is we're commanded to baptize, but we have a lot of very strongly held views about how we baptize. The, so you could put down baptism how-tos. That, that's optional. So if, if someone were to give their life to Jesus in the middle of a church service, can you baptize them right there? You know, could you could you baptize them in a lake? Can you baptize them in a baptismal? Can you baptize them in a pool? You know, who can baptize them? Is it just uh, seminary-educated clergy? Um, can it be their parents? Can it be another believer? Do they have to attend a class first? Do they have to pass a class first? You know, we don't have direct commands attached to these kinds of things. So decisions have to be made, and we should do those prayerfully. But again, these are optional, and we can't elevate them to a point where we get really mad at people if they do them differently. Uh, another tradition would be uh, worship style, or even really a worship leader. You could put those together. So worship style, worship leader. Um, this one generates strong feelings as well. You know, do you do you use an organ? Do you play guitar or piano? Do you do it acoustic, uh, acoustic or electric? Do you just sing? Um, you know, the culture wars were like 20 years ago about contemporary versus traditional. Uh, but like I said, a worship leader is also optional. You know, where in scripture is there a command for a band or one person to lead? You, you might have examples of these, and I think they would even be helpful to facilitate worship. But there is no command. These are optional. When, when the people of God gather together, we should be able to gather together and sing without a leader, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's not a command to have a particular person that's always leading, because we should be able to gather together and we should be able to sing our hearts out to God without having to have somebody go, okay, now you have to, to sing this song. Our, our hearts should be filled with worship to God. These are, these are not bad things. Uh, how we worship and having a worship leader, they aren't bad things. We're not trying to discredit them, but again, they're optional. Um, but what is not optional, and you can put on the command side, is we're called to sing to God. That is a very clear command in Scripture. You see it in numerous places. Uh, I put down Colossians 3.16. You can go and look that up. But we're called to sing to God. There, there are plenty of references to this. Um, the expectation is that we would have a heart um, for worshiping Him. Again, not just as individuals, but as a body of Christ. And, and this is not optional. So it doesn't matter if we like to sing. It doesn't matter if it's not our favorite thing to do or we don't think we have a good voice. The expectation of a believer, of a follower of Jesus, both at an individual level and a corporate one, is that we would sing to him. And so, you know, have you ever thought about that when it comes to your 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 quote-unquote quiet time, how you spend your time? We want to be in scripture. We want to be praying, but we're also commanded to sing. How often do you worship outside of when you're kind of made to worship within a worship service? Uh, we're called to sing to him. Uh, another command uh, would be repentance and confession. We're called to repent. We're called to confess. And this is all over the scriptures as well. I have down James 5.16 for this one, but we're, this is not just to God individually, but also to each other. Um, so obviously there's some discretion on how we do this. We're not just going to go to church and, and just start spilling out everything and, and uh, offending people by some of the things that we say. We're going to do it with some discretion, but I think there is room for public confession. There's also room for some things I can talk about and publicly confess, and there's some things that I probably need to have a smaller group of people that they're keeping me accountable for, but we are called to confess our sins. And in fact, confessing our sins is one of the ways that God then redirects us. He forgives us and then transforms us. So confession is essential. So just as we're studying the scripture, just as we're praying, just as we're singing to him, 
we we're called to have a regular habit of repentance and confession. Um, is that something that our churches emphasize? Uh, another command, and I've talked about this one a couple of different times already, but we haven't put it on the board. So if you're if you're continuing to make this chart on the left side, a command of God is to pray. First Thess- First Thessalonians five seventeen says, "Pray without ceasing." There there are numerous commands to pray in the New Testament. God wants dialogue with you. He wants you to come to Him. Yeah, he wants us as a body to come to him. This is a non-negotiable part of, of our individual walks, but also our corporate bodies. We should be praying as groups of believers often, and not just hearing one pray, one person pray over and over in scripture or in our services, because that's what tends to happen. We, our, our prayer life as a corporate body of Christ just ends up being one person praying on a stage. And a lot of times it's just a transition between items in a service. Guys, that, that is not what the Bible wants us to be about when it comes to prayer. So uh, I, it's even one of those things that as I've grown up, I've noticed that there were a lot of churches when I was a kid who emphasized prayer. They would have prayer nights, but then the body of Christ wouldn't show up. And so the prayer nights turned into just another time for the, the pastor to have a sermon and, and to sing some songs, which aren't bad, right? But we've neglected prayer as a corporate body. So we should be praying not only as individuals, not only just, you know, as we're going about the day, having kind of moment by moment prayers, but um, Jesus modeled time getting alone to pray and we're called to pray and we're called to pray with one another. So praying out loud in a corporate gathering as, as a group is, is an important part of what we're doing as believers. So we're commanded to pray. Uh, a, a tradition attached to prayer that you could possibly put on the right side would be pray before you eat. Um, it's a good habit. I think it provides value to stop and say, thank you, God, for, for what you've given to us. But it's not commanded in Scripture. We're commanded to be thankful. But um, there's traditions that pray after a meal. It, it doesn't mean that you should stop doing it. The, the, the things on the right are not, I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm not saying that we should stop them. But we, but we can't hold them above actual commands with God. So if, if we encounter someone who doesn't pray before their meal, I think our initial reaction would be, are they a Christian? Do they not know that you're supposed to pray before your meal? But if we weren't necessarily um, loving one another well, we wouldn't necessarily go, are they a Christian? That's that's what I'm trying to get at, that our tradition, sometimes we can ascribe more worth to them than the actual commands of God. That people can look at praying before you eat and say, and judge people on whether or not they're a believer or not. But then like an actual thing that God has told us to do, which is to love one another well, we don't we don't look at that and make make any kind of assessment. We just you know it's we don't hold that as highly sometimes as praying or praying before you eat or some of these other traditions. Uh, another tradition and this is one that has become huge in our time. Uh, I haven't studied a lot of early church history as, as far as this one goes. I, I should probably do that. I think it'd be fun to do. Um, but age based ministry you could put that on the right side for tradition. This is optional, and there's a lot of passion about this one. Very strong feelings. So. Here we're thinking about things like singles ministry, seniors classes, um, children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, pretty much any kind of ministry that's based around an age group. And again, there's no text guiding us here. So a lot of what we see in scripture, you think about Paul when he writes Timothy talking about how his grandmother and mother poured into him, but you'll see a lot of intergenerational relationships within the body of Christ. And so this is optional. You can do age-based ministry or you cannot. Um, I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't do it. But we don't have a specific text to say that's either right or that's wrong. And so we should probably have a good mix between 
uh, age-based ministries, but then also intergenerational ministries where people from different backgrounds and from different age groups are getting together and studying the Word of God and kind of rubbing shoulders and seeing how they do life. Uh, because our, our culture, what we do is we place a high value on lessons. That's why we, uh, the what we'll talk about in a little bit is a long monologue sermon. We value that and we value lessons where like if we can just get our kids to sit in front of a person and they give a lesson that eventually they'll end up doing the right thing. And statistics bear out that that might not be true. Um, but because cult- cultures, other cultures uh, around the world and throughout time, they've placed a high value on intergenerational relationships. So I'm not trying to pit one against the other, but I'm saying both can be good. The problem is when we overvalue finding the perfect age-based ministry, a lot of people will put a lot of stress on that when it comes to church. My kid needs this number of kids their age around them. I need to find the perfect youth group that has the perfect right amount of children that uh, are both far from God and close to God and, you know, singles, they can't mix with couples and people with kids, they don't hang around young adults. We, uh, you know, we lose a lot of value in the body of Christ when we're not having these intergenerational relationships. Are there places and are there times for an age-based approach? Yes, but it's optional because remember, we're, we're talking about commands of God. And I would argue that we really miss out on a lot of growth for our families and uh, other believers if we just quote-unquote stick to our own. It's good for my son to be around other men who are following after Jesus and to see them worshiping and praying and to see how they interact with people and see how they handle adversity and to to hear what they talk about. And it's and it's good for my daughter to be around other women who are, are serving and evangelizing and worshiping and to have role models like that. Is it good for them to be around other kids too? Absolutely. But we need both. Um, so a, a strongly held tradition are these age-based ministries. And because if, if we go to a church and they don't have an age-based ministry, but they they have another plan to disciple their young people, some people would be like, no, you know. Um, and again, it's optional. It, it's a tradition. It's not a commandment. Um, another tradition would be where we meet, when we meet. Um, I'll just give you a couple really rapid fire here. Where we meet that's optional. There's there's strong expectations here, so we can gather in a lot of different places. Uh, a house, a building, a school, um, you name it. You, sh- you show up somewhere, or a park, you know? You show up somewhere, and a lot of times, depending on where you might go, you might think, this isn't church. Um, but church is not confined to a place, and that's important. So it's not, you know, if you're, if you're against traditional church, it's not just a house church. That's not, you know, house churches are in Scripture, but God doesn't command us to do house church. Uh, where we meet is an option, but so is when we meet. The The early church met on Sundays. It was an early church practice, but it was not a direct command. So my church right now, we meet on Saturday night, and and that's mainly due to logistics, um, but it does not have to be Sunday morning. Um, so for these and really all the items that we're putting on the right side, so we just put where we meet and when we meet, we're, we're just simply holding them loosely. And we can ask the question, well, what is best? God, help help us determine how to accomplish all the commands that you've given us by using these things on the right side. We can ask what is best, but we don't want to put them over and above or even equal to the commands of God. All right, a few more and then we'll wrap up. Um, another command, Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus commanded us to, to do the Lord's Supper, and we see this in Matthew 26, uh, verses 26 to 28. But there's freedom in how we express it. So you could put a tradition would be Lord's Supper how-tos. That's, that's a tradition. So a lot of people uh, would do it once a week, 
Uh, is it just when the whole church is gathered or can a family do it? Could two, could two friends do it when they're out to lunch? Um, who can give out the Lord's Supper? Do, do they have to be ordained? Those kinds of things. Those are details that Jesus doesn't tell us, but a lot of people have very strongly held opinions about. And so we want to hold them loosely. We want to make sure that we are, we're not elevating them over God's commands. Uh, another, tr- another tradition, and this is one that probably can rile some people up, but is, is long monologue uh, talking, uh, sermon, I guess is what you would say. Um, it's, there is a command to preach. Uh, this is actually, we're commanded to teach the word. We saw that in the Great Commission, but what does that mean? We oftentimes have this really strong expectation about a, a 30 to 45 minute long, most of the time by one person just sharing something that they've been learning and, and wanting to expound to other people. And most of the time in scripture, the word preach is actually outside the gathering of believers. It doesn't mean someone in a quote-unquote pulpit talking for a long time. Preaching is proclaiming the gospel. Um, you can go look in 2 Timothy 4.2. We see all types of teaching and preaching in the Bible. Jesus teaches on the way. He answers questions. He tells stories. He refers to the Old Testament. There's a lot of discussion. Much of the teaching happens throughout life. So preaching, you know, the, the, the sermon, I'm not trying to ban the sermon. I, I still preach sermons sometimes, but it's a good thing, but it doesn't always have to be present when believers get together. And, you know, if, if the person, if you are a Christian and you're looking for a church and you visit a church and you don't get this long monologue sermon, there's a lot of people that are going to be like, this isn't church. Like, what are we doing? You know, they're going to think that something wrong has happened because there's a lot of expectation attached to it. Now in our churches, there better be a lot of time in, our, in the word. We better be uh, teaching and equipping and, and reading it and and discussing it. Um, but we also have to realize that people learn well and scriptures don't dictate how our services are supposed to be supposed to be uh, run. They learn through experience and they learn through these conversations and they learn through wrestling with questions. And so we don't have to necessarily do away with the lecture, but we also have to admit that there's freedom in how we're supposed to teach the word. So in my church, for example, we've done a lot of discussions lately, and I think we have to understand that the Holy Spirit works through the, the body of Christ and not just the body of Christ that's called the pastor. <laughs> um, and I think that's really hard sometimes for us to let go as pastors because we value the, a really good expository sermon, and I don't think there's anything wrong with those. And I think if you find a church that um, exegetes the word well and has expository preaching, that's that can be good. But that's not the only way we should learn and I would say it shouldn't be the only way we should learn. So that's that's a tradition. Um, like I said, a few more traditions. Um, gathering size, uh, you know, whether you're 20 or 200, there's probably healthier practices, um, and we could talk about that sometime. There's no magic number. So gathering size is a tradition. Um, seminary tra- training for leaders, that's a tradition. We have a very strongly held view nowadays that if you are looking for a pastor and you do and you you form a pastor search committee and they're gonna they're gonna have a lot of requirements for their pastor, and I would argue that your your first and, and, and best requirement would be, do they love Christ, and and is their love for Christ demonstrated by the way they love other people and by their by, by their lifestyle, not whether or not they've gotten a master's or a PhD. So our seminary training can be helpful. I went to seminary. I love seminary. Uh, I've learned a lot from seminary, but our leaders don't have to be seminary trained. Uh, another tradition would be uh, really any program. So VBS, Awanas, softball teams, um, 
Sunday school, they're all very helpful, but but they're optional. Um, we can we're trying to make disciples by going, baptizing, teaching, and obeying. And so any program that aids in that, any program that helps that, that can be good. But but they're not something that we want to to hold so strongly that we would get upset about if they weren't there. Um, a command would be gather regularly. Uh, Hebrews 10.25, you can put that down. If you're not gathering regularly with another body, with a body of believers, uh, for Bible study, for prayer, for all these things that we've listed as commands, then you're disobeying um, God, and that's imp- and uh, we got we've got to hold that uh, up high. Another command would be everyone using their gifts. I mentioned this when it came to teaching. Um, when we're discussing Scripture, First uh, Peter four ten, you can go look at that for everyone use their gifts. But uh, when we're discussing Scripture, people should be able to if if they've got insight, they should be able to share it. Um, but we should be every every person in the body of Christ should be using the gifts that God has given them. And oftentimes when we gather. You just don't see that. You see a few people using their gifts, and the rest of the people are faced one direction, just kind of watching the show. And we don't we don't want it to seem like that. And hopefully, they're engaged. But a lot of times, that's the way it is. And we want to make sure that as a body of Christ, when we get together, especially if we're only getting getting together one or two hours every week as as a body of Christ, that we're we're adequately using that time, and we're not just putting one or two people on a pedestal. So everyone use their gifts. That's a, that's a command of God. So if people aren't using their gifts in a church, in, in, in the local body of Christ, then I think there's a problem. Uh, another tradition would be paid staff. Um, Paul encouraged uh, support for leaders, uh, but he chose not to take pay. So it, it's, it's not wrong to have paid staff, but you also don't have to have paid staff. Uh, there's, there's, there's freedom there. So uh, again, with all these things, there, there's always healthy discussion to be had for whether to pay, whether not to pay. Um, you know how to do baptism, how to pro- how to best teach those kinds of things, but it, it's optional. So if you're a group of believers that are ten to fifteen people, you don't have to go and hire a pastor who's been seminary educated. But we feel like we have to, right? But our leaders um, can be bivocational. And that's also not a command. But they can be. So we're holding that loosely. Uh, one more command and then one more tradition and, and we'll wrap up here. So one more command, reading scripture aloud corporately. Uh, we're called in 1 Timothy 4.13 to read scripture aloud uh, as a body of Christ. That's actually what the believers would do when they would get the letters um, because they were originally letters. They weren't just bound in a codex like we have it now. They would read them aloud and they would absorb them. My church last week, we actually read 1 John aloud. We prayed after every chapter trying to respond to what God was teaching us. And that was the sermon for the week. So we're, we're called to read scripture aloud corporately. And if, if your church is not regularly reading scripture aloud, uh, I would say even more than just one or two verses that sometimes we can just hammer on. But we need to regularly read scripture aloud together. Sometimes in small groups, we should just read a lot of scripture. Um, I, I worry sometimes when our, our small groups of believers will study books, uh, not books of the Bible, but actual books, more than they do the actual scripture. And we, we get really caught up on people's opinions and thoughts about the Bible without ever actually engaging the Bible its, itself. So it's important for us to read Scripture aloud corporately. And then the last one, uh, this is the last tradition, the, the excellent service. And this is, this is a very strong one for a lot of people. Uh, the majority of our resources, the majority of particularly pastors' time and energy is devoted to making an excellent service because... There's a drive to keep bodies in the seats and and budget, right? And when I'm talking about excellent service, I'm not talking about 
how much God moved in the service or what, what I'm what I'm what I'm really getting at is how good was the pastor uh, how good were the songs were the transitions perfect you know were there were there typos in the in the PowerPoint slides or the media shout whatever you use you know uh, was the pastor funny enough but also poignant enough you uh, were were the musicians good? Did one of the did one of the singers you know sing the wrong note? Those kinds of things. Now, is it is it bad to do excellent things for God? No, but sometimes we can value excellence in those things without actually valuing excellence in the commands that He's given us. Now, Francis Chan has a great illustration for this. I've, I've read it in one of his books. I think it was also in the We Are Church teaching. Uh, Imagine you were to walk into a restaurant and you were wanting a steak and you order a steak and the waiter comes back and as the waiter comes back you see a piping hot plate of spaghetti. And you would you would ask the, the waiter, why on earth did you bring me a spaghetti? I ordered a steak. And the waiter could say, well look, we if you look on our website, we, we promote this. that We have the best spaghetti in town. We've won awards for it. Just eat the spaghetti. And we'd say, no, that's not what I ordered. I'm not craving. You know, it could be the best spaghetti in the world. It could, it could be excellent. It could be, you know, whatever, whatever quality, uh, whatever quality item the restaurant might think it is. But that's not what I ordered. And you'd be frustrated with that. You would say, no, go get me my steak, please. <laughs> and I think that's what we've done with the church. God has ordered the things on the left. If you take a look at all the commands that you've placed on the left side of the chart, and I hope you've been writing these down. If we're going to be excellent in anything, it has to be in those things, right? Now, it's it's certainly not wrong for the pastor to want to be on point when when he's preaching. If he does if he does a sermon, he wants to do it well. That's not that's not bad. Uh, it's also not wrong. My church is work, uh, looking for a worship leader right now, for a worship leader to want to be excellent as a musician. Um, but if he's not excellent at loving others well, if he's not being excellent at praying and making disciples then we're, we're being excellent in the wrong thing or, or we're elevating something that shouldn't be on par with the commands of God. So if, if you were to go to, uh, let's say you were to go to a church and it met in a preschool. Uh, that's where my church used to meet, just <laughs> FYI. Uh, if you were to go to church and it met in a preschool and they were just, they gathered together, maybe they gathered in a, in a few different circles, a few different groups, and they just discussed the word of God together. They read it out loud. They prayed together. They, were, they cared for each other in the midst of it. They took communion, but there was no sermon. Wouldn't a lot of you go, was that church? Like, you know, we're not in a church building. There was no sermon. Um, you know, they, they sung a song aloud, but there wasn't musicians. What what was that? You know, that that would really bother some people. Um, but, but, for, but for for you to go to a church and for everything to be on point and for there to be an excellent service, but you didn't see the love of God conveyed in the way that people greeted each other, or you didn't see a, a lot of prayer, or you're not seeing disciples being made, why doesn't why don't those things bother us? Why don't those things make us go, what is wrong here? Um, so, you know, you can dress up for church. There can be a great flow of service. There can be a good youth group. You could be meeting in, the, in a nice building at the right time. But that's not more important than those things on the left. What's felt to be non-negotiable in your church? What's felt to be non-optional in your individual life? Is it, is it making disciples? Is it deeply loving one another? Is it regularly, be, regularly being in Scripture? 
but are we too busy being on the right side in all the traditions and not spending enough time with the commands of God? And so I think to some degree, we should all be able to show up as believers in Christ, no matter the size of our church, we should be able to just show up and do the left side of the board without any prep. We should be able to gather together as believers and we should be able to worship without anyone leading us in worship. We should be able to to read scripture aloud. We should be able to discuss what God's word says. We should be praying for each other as we're making disciples. We should be baptizing. We should be taking Lord's Supper. We should be doing all these things that are commands of God. And it wouldn't take hours upon hours of our week to make us a perfect service and to program. But we've emphasized those things on the right so much that so much of our time and our energy and our effort are into them and we're not as focused on are we are we are we doing and are we committed to and are we being excellent in the commands of God so I just want you to consider that I just want you to think about it I hope you wrote those lists out I, I know um, that that was a lot and I appreciate you sticking around that might have been our longest podcast yet in fact I, I'm looking at the time it absolutely was but I think it's worth it to really think through these things I hope this was both challenging and enjoyable for you. I, I would encourage you to spend some time meditating and reflecting on this. If, if you have feedback for me, you can email me, podcastvia at gmail.com, podcastvia at gmail.com. I'd love to hear the feedback. Um, but if this was encouraging, if this was challenging, if, if this helps you at least think through, okay, God, are we doing the things that we're called to do as believers and as churches? I'd love for you to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share this episode with your friends. I think it's important in our cultural moment to begin to discuss these things. I love you guys. Um, I encourage you as you follow after Christ, don't give up. Even when you stumble, it's worth it. See you next time.